don't know. They're not paying attention. They're like they're at the gym listening to this on their iPhone pad pod. They're at spin class. <laughs> and they drink Red Bull. <laughs> Welcome to Tell Me Why I'm Wrong, the internet's favorite <laughs> podcast about why Sophie and I are wrong. Uh, I'm Amos, uh, one of your co-hosts. I'm Sophie. I'm the other one. And I'm really enjoying the image of everyone I know drinking Red Bull at spin class while listening to this podcast. I love it's it. And, me. <laughs> and the, the music is, I don't know, what, what kind of music do they play at spin class? I don't know. Probably like, I don't know. What, what sounds good with, come on, ladies! <laughs> I was imagining like some kind of electronic dance music. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is a show. We put it out on the internet. And uh, the way it usually works is, is one of us will start it off by uh, uh, giving a little talk about something that, uh, that they don't know too much about. And then the other one sets them straight. Uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently today. We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, First, we want to go back to our our um, bribe, our extortion that we uh, that we mentioned last episode, and and the offer is if you get us five ratings and reviews, in by which we mean iTunes, you have to write them, you got to do it yourself. Yeah, uh, they don't have to be good, but just get them in there. <laughs> I mean, we'd like to th- we'd like to think they're good. Uh, it, it, you know, if, if if our listeners can do that for us, then we will record a bonus, a bonus episode. episode. Um, because this is actually our last episode of season one. This is season one, episode six. So yeah, so pedal um, faster, losers. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if if you want to hear more of us before uh, season two drops, um, get out there and write those reviews. Get talk to your friends. Get them to write reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, no bonus episode, and yeah. that would be sad for all of us. Want want. Uh, do we have any other business today, Sophie? I don't think so. I think we're ready to go. Okay, let's do it then. This is season one, episode six, ways of parentheses not knowing Redux, part two. Yeah. Um, Back again. Yeah, because knowing and not knowing, you know, that's that's a theme for this whole show. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it um, is. Yeah, good it point. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it really is. Uh, so here's here's uh, a little something I have to say about it. I'm going to talk a little bit about forecasting. Um, there's been a lot of talk over the last few years about forecasting and modeling and making predictions. Writers like Nate Silver at 538.com and David Lenhart. Leonhart, do you know how to say his name? I have no clue. Okay. At the New York Times, he, he's the editor-in-chief of the little, their little upshot uh, thing. Uh, people like that have popularized the type of journalism that makes lots of predictions. Uh, and I have a concern about this that I want to talk about. It may sound trivial, but I'm assuming that it isn't or that it will get us into an interesting conversation anyway. Oh, definitely. So how do these, well, I'm ready. You think so? Yeah. Okay. So how do these models and predictions work? Basically, a bunch of nerds look at statistics to figure out what factors seem to predict what outcomes. Uh, You know, they do things like regression analysis and blah, blah, blah. Uh, One example that's been on everyone's minds might be looking at elections and trying to figure out what matters. Is it TV ads, campaign rallies, or underlying economic conditions? These pencil neck geeks look at the historical data, see what factors seem important and in what proportions, and use that to predict the future. And I should say it's not just journalists who do this. Political scientists do this kind of stuff, too. Um, And I'm not here to crap on that. I think there's a lot of value there. But I think there's some limits. Uh, Historical modeling like this only works to the extent that the same rules apply in the present slash future as in the past. And I think we're in a time when certain forces in our politics are stronger than they were when a lot of models were created, making these models somewhat unreliable. Um, this is this is our concern. So, so Sophie, uh, talk to me. Tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, did I make sense? Did, did I make enough sense to be wrong? 
No, I don't think you're wrong at all. And um, should we have, should we say a little something about the, the the different format that we're sort of using here now? Right, because I said we would. So you said we would, so we probably should. So normally, the way the way we've done this show is that one of us will say something, um, where we're trying to we're trying to uh, say something provocative or make a thesis about something that is sort of more in the other person's wheelhouse. So Sophie's right, to sort of a, get them to say, get them to talk about something that we want to learn about. Yeah. So Sophie's a poet. So I, I did one where I talked to her about why I thought no one reads poetry anymore. And then she told me why I was wrong. Um, so this one is a little bit different today. In today's episode, uh, we're going to be talking, our, our little opening things are going to be about things that we're concerned about and where we that we want to talk about, not necessarily that we want to hear the other person talk about, though I absolutely do want to hear what Sophie has to say about <laughs> this. Yeah, okay. So uh, I mostly, I think I share your concern and I share your general sense of things. So I don't think I'm going to tell you why you're wrong, but I hope I can ask some questions to sort of get you more into this. And 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 one of them has to do with just the change in your thinking. Um, you used to mm-hmm. be really into this kind of thing, stats and predictions, especially for politics. And, you know, obviously this also comes out of sports. Um, yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. when I first I really started here, here you, hearing you talk about, um, you know, baseball predictions and all kinds of stuff like that. And I think that you, you're definitely the person who introduced me to 538.com. Oh, um, and, and I remember you being pretty... Um, you know, pretty positive about Nate Silver and this kind of thing. So one of the things I'm kind of wondering is, you know, why have you soured on it a little bit? Um, You know, is it just the failure of these forms of kind of like predictive strategies um, in the face of the most recent election? I mean, they just really seem to have um, totally uh, not lived up to anything they were trying to do. And for me personally, that is sort of like a concern. Um, Is it, is it, is it, alternatively or complementarily that uh that that this is not really journalism it's sort of built you you yourself kind of framed it as a certain kind of journalism and it doesn't really yeah. seem at all to be journalism um or is it something else so it's it's not just a function of of the most recent election because i i was i was having this concern well before then um and actually i I think Nate Silver acquitted himself pretty well. Oh, I totally disagree. <laughs> I think not everyone else did. I mean, you know, his his final prediction was, you know, he I think he had it about 70-30 Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton um Trump. So he thought Hillary was likely to win, but he thought uh he thought there was a real chance that Trump would win. And he was the the reasons he gave, like his scenario for like if Trump wins, it'll be because X, Y, and Z happens was pretty spot on. Oh, so you mean he acquitted himself sort of before the event, another way of saying he kind of covered his ass. But I thought he behaved fairly unimpressively after because immediately I mean, like, he was like he was sort of like Yeah, he was sort of like, Well, I said it could happen, guys. Why are you all so upset? Sure. No, he he can get super defensive. And I don't think he understands the kind of cultural role that he plays. I mean, people, you know this, I, I mean, people were obsessively checking 538 in a kind of panic, yeah. um, like in the weeks and even months leading up to the election. And and when it went the way it did, he sort of seemed to think that people were overreacting because they they seemed, you know, his, his claim was like, I never said it was 100%. And it's like, well, that's not what people were reacting to. They, they, weren't, they weren't upset because you were... <sighs> Because you were making a claim that turned out to be the wrong claim, They're, they were upset because this is a really upsetting thing that they had invested in you the power to sort of like let us know if it was going to happen or or even keep it from happening somehow or tell us how to keep it from happening. And that seems like part of what you're complaining about is that uh, the prediction doesn't really give you anything in the way of uh, of affecting the future or influencing it. So, no, you're wrong. <laughs> About which part? All of that. Oh, okay. No, well, so I mean, I think you, you could well be right about why people were were uh, mad at Nate Silver. Um, like I said, I mean, I'm I'm not really sh- I'm not really sure. I th- and again, I think there are plenty of people to be more angry at than him. Like I'm trying to remember who oh, yeah. was. I mean, who the was line it that- is long. Yeah, I mean, and there were other 
other people who who uh, who play in this area who you know were saying like oh Hillary Clinton ninety ninety percent chance to win, which was which was always ridiculous. Well, but Nate Silver's website had something very close to that in the you know maybe like two or three weeks before the election. No, I, well, I, I'll check. I don't think he was ever. I don't think he was ever there. It was the high eighties at the minimum. I maybe think. maybe. Like right around the the um, pussy grabbing, he may have, he may have gotten that high, um, I but I think I mean one of, of one of his <laughs> our political vocabulary and false pussy. Uh, I mean, ah! also, one of his arguments was that there was a lot of um, instability in the race. So so uh, a good comparison would be the 2012 race, which was which was quite close. You know, Obama ended up winning by about four points. It, so it was. And and the polls at polling average had him at about you know plus two point five um, just before the election. So he outperformed the polls a little bit, but they were close. But he was a very heavy favorite because the polls were close and they weren't moving anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like the polls had been very stable for mm-hmm. months. Right. So you know there could have been some sort of systemic bias in the polling, in which case maybe he would have lost. It turns out there was maybe a little bit of systemic bias or maybe it was a campaign effect and he ended up outperforming them. But, but that's like a, a, a two and a half point lead. That's very, very stable is very different from a two and a half point lead when things have been bouncing all over the place. Um, and, and again, I think this, that's something that Nate Silver did, did say very clearly. And he, you know, he said like other people are, are, too confident in Hillary's chances here. There's, you know, they shouldn't really shouldn't be dismissing Trump's chances. And and I think one of the other really interesting things that happened is, you know, um, uh, you know, if you look at a at the electoral map, I think a lot of people were saying, well, if Trump's going to win, not only does he have to win Wisconsin, he's got to win Michigan, he's got to win Ohio, he's got to win Pennsylvania, he's got to win Florida. Um, and what are the chances that he's going to be able to pull off an upset in all of those states? And I think one of the things that Nate Silver pointed out was it, it it doesn't work like that. You know, if something happens that causes Trump to win Wisconsin, that same thing is very likely to give him Michigan as well because they're similar states with similar demographics. So it doesn't really sound like you have a problem with any of this, though. I, I, need- I, do, I don't. And so so so. Uh, let me back up. So that's that's why that's why you're wrong um, in that that my concern isn't about isn't about um, this, this like specific election results and the role that forecasting played in it. That's like a nice uh, uh, news hook to you know because people are talking about it, so it mm-hmm, gives me an mm-hmm. excuse to talk about it. But my concern is a little bit a little bit different, like. You know, one one thing would be like like say you're doing demographic modeling for uh, for an election, and you why don't you say, just tell us what that is in just a few words? Yeah, so so w- one way of trying to forecast an election would be to to look at the demographics of let's say a state and say like okay, there's there's it's this percentage of white people without college degrees, this percentage white people with college degrees, this percentage black, this percentage Hispanic you know, uh, uh, average income in the state is why, and, and just sort of break things down like that. And then you can say like, okay, we know that, uh, uh, Latinos tend to support Democrats at about this rate. And, uh, re- uh, white people without college degrees support Republicans at this rate. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then you can sort of say like, okay, well, like looking at the demographics, what would have to happen in order for each candidate to win this state? Um, and that would be a way like, like, you know, looking at historical data to know that, uh, you know, white people support Republicans at such and such a rate and blacks and Latinos support Democrats at whatever you you get. And that historical data would be different from say current polling data. Yeah, right. It it could be, it could be, or it could be a mix of both. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, but, but sometimes something happens that sort of changes the rules of the game. And I, and I do think, you know, uh, just cause it's a, it's a handy example, like Trump, it, you know, it turned out that he got white voters at a rate, like a lot of people thought, you know, Mitt Romney won about 60% of white voters. And a lot of people thought, well, there's no way that there's no way to get more than 60% of white voters. Like that's just crazy. Um, and then, and then Trump went and did it. Mm. Um, 
and he did much more than that in in some states. Um, so, so I guess that would be an example of like maybe, maybe I mean, maybe it's just Trump. Maybe it's something uh, underlying our politics that's changing. That's that's changing some of these rules. Like maybe, um, maybe we're entering an era where a Republican getting over sixty percent of the white vote is is just going to be like a normal thing now. And, so, and if that's the case, then a lot of models about uh, how elections are going to play out in the future are going to have to change. So is the problem then that like the model is flawed right now, but if people, if these folks worked on the model and came up with a better model, you wouldn't have a problem with it. Yeah. I've got no problem with modeling. Um, uh, I think, I think, I guess, I guess what it comes down to is that, that, uh, uh, you know, if a model is, if a predictive model is based on historical information, then uh, it's going to be least helpful and least interesting at those times when when the rules are changing. And, that seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah, and but but it turns out those are the times when like we're most in need of yeah. help making predictions or help understanding what's going to happen, and that's guess, when statistical models are least helpful. I guess I'm wondering whether I could push on this a little bit, and you can tell me I'm totally wrong, and I'm sure you will. But why is it that prediction is so important? I wonder Maybe. about this a lot. I mean, I think we all put a lot of stock in it and we get invested in it, especially in um, political situations where it feels like there's a lot at stake, which lately it feels like that all the time. I mean, especially especially recently, but I think that's been the case for a long time now um, for most of my voting, you know, adult voting life. Um, but I'm wondering whether it's the wrong emphasis. I mean, who cares what the prediction is? We should care what we're going to do, right? I mean, it sort of seems like it's a it's a way of knowing people. You know, people can people use it as a way of of gauging, you know, whether they should care or not. And it seems to me that 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 might not be. Is that how we want to engage in politics? We just want to we just want some some as you called them pencil necked nerds <laughs> to tell us to tell us like how likely disaster is to befall, and then we sort of decide like okay, well you know seven, I'm fine with seventy thirty. I, I don't you know, I'm cool with that. Um, shouldn't we be more focused on okay, what are our values? What are our principles? What policies do we want to enact? And 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 whether or not it's likely based on some data, which may or may not. Be flawed to to be successful we do it anyway right because because that's your civic duty um i mean isn't all this predi predictive predictive prediction all this sort of like <laughs> predictivizing but yeah isn't it kind of like a like a distraction from like the point of politics which is to sort of like do something well i think it depends on who you are and what your role is if you're if you're uh, an engaged citizen boring. to quote you this is a boring answer <laughs> It's, no, it's, it's very reasonable. It's going to get interesting. Hold, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that you did that to me. Yeah. Uh, no, it's true. It depends is always the most boring answer to any question. <laughs> I know, but it's uh, almost always right. Also, that's what makes it so boring. Yeah. But, well, yeah, yeah. so I mean, I would just say, like, if, if you're talking about like the average citizen voter, yeah. uh, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, we want our citizens to be engaged, and you know, regardless of of what the odds of winning are, we want them to right. Be you do what you do. Going out there fighting for what what we believe in, what they believe in, and right. doing their engaged citizen. You don't just the fight, you, you know. Right, you you like you you fight the fight that you believe in, not just yeah. the one that you think you can win. I if think that's an Aaron, I think I think that's an Aaron Sorkin quote. I'm feeling ashamed oh, okay. now, but yeah, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know if oh. you're a. <laughs> well, if, that's a question for another day. We could have a whole conversation. Anyway, never mind. If you're a political strategist, then you need to know like how to allocate resources, right? And you, uh, and in that case, you want to allocate resources where they're going to be the most effective. So, sure. in that case, you like again, if hypothetically speaking, if you're running a national campaign, you want to put your resources in you know states where you're going to be able to maybe flip the state. So states that are that are like number one, like sort of close to even. And number two, you know, you want to dump your resources in the state that's most likely to be the tipping point between, you know, winning and losing. Winning and losing, yeah. So, but that's a different question, and and the majority of us are not professional political strategists. Although I think uh, a larger and larger number of people are either either have pretensions to be or like want to sort of affect affect some of those. 
uh, like priorities. I I totally agree. And I think that's that's why I don't think my answer ultimately was boring because that's where I was going. Oh, okay. Awesome. Right. So I think. Sorry, I just got really excited. Yeah. (laughs) See? Uh, so right. No, I think you're totally right. I think, I think a lot of let's, you know, news consumers or, or political junkies are in their head are sort of political wonks. strategists. Yeah. I will I won't say wonks. I think that's a little bit different, but, but the political junkies, they okay, all, okay. Sure, they, sure, sure. they want to be as, as Jay Rosen would say, they all, uh, they all want to be savvy, mm-hmm. um, or, or perform savviness. Yeah. And part of performing it's so tiresome. God, it is, it's so it tiresome. is tiresome and I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anyone. Um, but, but, you know, you perform savviness by, by not being just some, uh, you know, some person reading the news to find out what's going on. Right. You know, when you're, when you're savvy, yeah, yeah. When you're savvy, you know, you see behind all that and you know, things that other people don't know. And, you know, I think part of that is like not getting maybe not getting engaged in things yeah. the way other people do or, yeah. or knowing, feeling yeah. like, you know, what to care about and what not to care yeah. about. Right. It's a kind of like, um, uh, like needing to feel more informed than other people or like, or more, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of like have a deeper understanding than the, the rest. And it. it's yeah. like an arrogance, right? And I'm totally describing myself here, which is, <laughs> which is why this is so, uh, accurate. I don't uh, think you're describing yourself quite well, as much okay. as you. I mean, I, well, I, I see like a sort of shadow outline, but I, I, I think you should let yourself off the hook a little bit. I think that you Aww. actually are like a more uh, thoughtful and compassionate political, like your engagement is, is like a little bit less about your own uh, sense of self-worth than some people's. I okay. think. Well, I, less, less self. Yeah. Okay. Oh. It's less about generating like a degree of positive self-regard than than it is about like actually caring about the fate of the world. Well, that's very sweet. I'm sweet. Yeah. Yeah, you are. <laughs> uh so I don't know what else to say about that, but I you know, this this it derailed sadness, you by flattery. <laughs> it works every time. Like, oh well, I I mean if you say so. Uh yeah, so but but I but I think I think this whole breed of journalism sort of feeds this like savvy newsreader yeah, and, and yeah. flatters their savviness. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that's certainly true. Um, yeah. So can we talk oh, oh, about whether one, or not it's thing. journalism? No. Okay. I, I want to talk something else about <laughs> We We can in a second, right? Just, just something else to say about it. Yeah. You, you mentioned sports. Yeah. So it's interesting. I, I, uh, I knew who Nate Silver was before before he created 538 because of baseball right because of baseball and and actually yeah. when he initially created 538 he actually he actually used a pseudonym uh which oh. is a very a very uh sophisticated thing uh to do on the internet only sophisticated people do it <laughs> and rabbits uh, and <laughs> sophisticated people and rabbits uh actually i think he called himself publius whoa uh, that's really that's a little bit like yeah, I could I'm be putting, wrong. I'm doing like the movement of like pushing your glasses up on your nose. Yeah, I, I could be wrong about that. It was some, some sort of fake Latin um, uh, pseudonym. Publius uh, Poo. That would be uh, <laughs> that would be that would also be fake Latin. And then and then he came forward and said, "Oh yeah, I'm, I'm Nate Silver." I was like, "Holy shit, it's Nate Silver, the guy who created Pakoda. And you know, he'd been doing this this sort of um, stuff in in baseball. He wrote for Baseball Prospectus, uh, and he created you know, models for, um, evaluating baseball players and making predictions about, uh, who's going to win and all that stuff. And I, I but think, again, like, wouldn't it be more fun to just go to a baseball game and see what happens? Um, maybe, I mean, I mean, there's, you know, different people like different things. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> sure. But, but, but I guess, I guess one of the things that made baseball prospectus really popular back in the day, and I don't, I don't even know if it's really a thing anymore, but, but was the whole fantasy sports thing, the fantasy yeah. baseball. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing where everyone, you're not just a sports fan, you're like a general manager and you're, you're not just watching games, you're building a team mm-hmm. and, and, you know, advanced statistics might help you build a better team. Um, but it's, yeah, you're, uh, you know, 
I, I don't really have an opinion about whether or not it's better to just watch the game. But but it's a it's an interesting. But analogy, it's a different right? way of watching the game. Yeah. yeah, because I mean, if you're if you're thinking about it this way, you really like baseball. You you know, it's your hobby. And again, like we're going to get to the part where I explain how I don't understand how to have hobbies. But you know, you can't actually just be like, "Hey, I'd like to join the Boston Red Sox." You know, like you right. you can't you can't get on the field. You can't even be like an a, an assistant coach or a trainer or anything like that. You just have to you know you kind of it's more passive and the way to kind of make it more active is to do these other kinds of things that you're describing. And that's, so that's, so then in that case, okay, yeah, like all this predictive stuff has a, has a certain kind of place. And it seems like, but politics are different. Like there are candidates and campaigns and strategists and pollsters and all that stuff, not to mention civil servants, forgot about them for a second. Don't forget about the civil servants. (laughs) But like, but, but, but the rest of us actually can do all kinds of things, not only just vote, but like volunteer and have conversations and canvas and all those kinds of things. And so it's weird to me to shift the enthusiasm to predictions away from, again, action, doing stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so it's interesting that, that like that this is where this comes, I mean, at least in terms of Nate Silver, it comes out of this other mode that has some yeah. similarities and overlaps, but like in other ways is a totally different way of engaging. Also baseball. Wait, as, other as, mode as, meaning like sports fan sports, or specifically yeah. fantasy sports or that Both, kind of way. I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it, yeah, it is a different way of, uh, for some people. It's a different way of engaging. And I guess what, what I'm saying is, is these sort of savvy and I, you know, I've got scare quotes around that. These these savvy uh, consumers of political news, it's not so different yeah. for, for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, then that, right. It's so weird because I feel like on the one hand, there's a kind of like innocent enjoyment when I imagine baseball fans. And there's a kind of cynicism when I imagine the kind of uh, political, are you calling them political, savvy political junkies or something? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I have such a different idea of them and that only, that can only have to do with my own sense of how important politics versus baseball are to our like national life. So you're saying that, that like political life is more important than baseball? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, it seems I don't know. I'm not an Americanist. (laughs) That's it. That's a joke about, about American historians. (laughs) Are they all like baseball? (laughs) No, but there's a kind of well, it should have been an American studies joke. I missed it. Okay, anyway, next. Wow. Okay, that went over my head. <laughs> uh, no one will get that joke. Keep pedaling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I you know we. I don't. I don't. I'm not sure what else I have to say. <laughs> what about, about journalism? What about it's not journalism? Okay, make the case. I mean. Making isn't journalism supposed to be out like covering current events and giving deep background and explaining, uh, you know, going investigation and all this stuff like just sitting around predicting doesn't seem I don't know. It's like it just seems so passive somehow. Passive. Yeah. Mm, like say, say more like, about like, that. like it doesn't go anywhere. Like, I don't know. I guess maybe I'm just really. I was one of those people who was sort of like heart in my throat checking 538, like just in a sort of like as a, as a, like as a prophylactic, you know, just like, well, just to help manage your own anxiety. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then it's sort of like, Oh, but it was all bullshit. It was all bullshit. And like, that's not, that didn't do anything for me. And it doesn't even matter whether it did at this point, do I care whether Nate Silver had the right prediction or not? Do I care if anybody had the right prediction or not? No, it doesn't make any difference. I don't, I don't care. Like I would never have been prepared for what happened. Like it, it, I don't, you know, I just wish these people had done something else with their time. I don't know. I wish I'd done something else with my time. Well, that seems like more, more of the point. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, is the, is the idea that like you felt like misled by these? No, four- I mean, I'm not going to pass the buck, but I mean, I do think that like, maybe, maybe it's sort of what you're talking about. The sort of like, we all feel as though what we ought to be is the savvy uh, the savvy political news consumer instead of the kind of big eyed, hopeful, knocking on doors, trying to ask people how they feel about X or Y. And this kind of like preoccupation with prediction is part of making us feel that way. 
Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to be the naive rube who's like, I could maybe like run for Congress someday. You know, yeah. you don't want to be that person. You want to be the one who's like, well, let's just let's sit this let's sit this one out and let them all just destroy themselves because that way we'll we'll, we'll get the house back in twenty front of You know, it's just like oh, it's so stupid. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, and ultimately, I, I mean, you know, I think it's a defensive thing. I think, people, yeah, you know, it's 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 scary to really get engaged with politi- politics in a in a personal sort of way because because you're going to get hurt yeah you're going to get hurt real bad yeah because <laughs> you're going to lose uh, you sometimes know, every yeah 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 yep. you're, you're going to lose and and you know depending on how you're involved and engaged you know you you it's easy to get embarrassed like if you're if you're knocking on doors like yep. you know you're gonna have people slamming doors yep. in your face you're gonna yep. have people telling you to screw off um, they're going to tell you that the thing that you care the most about or that you're like feeling so emotionally invested in, is just like, you're, you're stupid. You're wrong. You might even be sinful. I mean, I, there's and, a lot and, of like culture war stuff that comes out of all this. And someone that you're fighting for, someone that you're risking all of this for could turn out to let you down in really important ways too. Right. Could be uh, imperfect. Yeah. So I think, oh. I think, I think it, it in some be ways, a anyway. real human being with flaws. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, it could be like, I mean, yeah. Or, or, or they could let you down in like more, like more yeah, substantive sure. ways, you right. know, when, not when just they like get normal. Into office. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Or, or, you know, I'm thinking about the people who are out there fighting hard for John Edwards yeah. um, and really right. believed in him because he was, you know, the one candidate in, in the, in the race who was really talking about poor people and helping poor people. Um, and then, you know, that all went down, uh, and, you know, people felt really, really hurt by that. Right. Right. Um, and, and so it's emotionally safer. So it to is be, a way to manage your emotions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. emotionally safer to, to engage in politics with this, with this, uh, stance of savviness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that seems about right. Seems about right. But it, but it won't save you in the end because, because eventually you're going to come up against the thing that does hurt you in reality. And, um, you know, you might wish that you had, it's sort of like, I don't know. This is like, I feel like this is a romantic comedy now or something. Like you should have told her how you really felt at the time because now you have to live with the consequences or something. You know what I mean? Like just be like, be open and honest and like lay yourself on the line while you still have the chance. Like, um, like love actually. Like like John Cusack with the really big boombox in the rain. Well, how'd that work out for him, huh? Good. He went to England with Ioni Sky. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> First, he got punched in the face. And he got the pen. Yeah, that wasn't nice. Yeah. That and was. He got not the nice. pen, and he got the girl. So he actually, that was kind of a well. But that's why end. she gave him the pen because she was not able to, you know, be fully engaged. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. I mean, good her point. dad also was like scamming the. Uh, this is a, a lot of spoilers what for. Yeah, Say spoilers anything. for saying. <laughs> Say I'm anything. incarcerated, Lloyd. <laughs> That's what he says. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, good good movie. <laughs> good, uh, good talk. <laughs> it's, it's the only Cameron Crowe movie I like. What? It's the only Cameron Crowe movie I like. What about Almost Famous? That's okay. What's wrong with you? Yeah, it's okay. It's a great soundtrack. Anyway. Um, I'll I'll put I'll I'll say say anything is good. Almost Famous is fine. Okay. Uh, I We're don't not really going to talk. Let's others. let's not speak of uh, Jerry Maguire. <laughs> uh, 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 That's an amazing sound. <laughs> so okay, so like, what's the sound bite though? I mean, so what do we? Where do we go from here? Are we going to just not have predictions anymore? Because there's like, we just need a better model. Like, what's no, the deal? No, no, we got to have predictions because. Is, is that true? Maybe we don't. Yeah, maybe I don't we, know. you know what? No, maybe Jewish, we don't. I don't Jewish know. law forbids, you know, looking into the future. Maybe that's the way to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, does instruct us in remembrance, however, as Walter Benjamin says. I'm just on a weird. I'm on a weird. Say that again today. In the in the thesis on the philosophy of history, Walter Benjamin says that Jewish tradition forbids looking into the future, but it does right. instruct us in remembrance. Oh, okay. Jewish history. Okay. Yeah. Um. I mean, you know, I, I, I would say like, um, 
Yeah, get get out of the pretending that you're a, a pundit and get into like being involved in yeah. like real legitimate ways cuz you're not a yeah. pundit. You don't you, you don't no, make your not. living writing you're for not. newspapers about politics and if you do um I'm glad to hear you're listening. Could you could you plug the show in your next column? <laughs> for everyone else though, like just go get involved in stuff you believe in. Find find an organization that you want to support and um that does something I know you you're, you're, you're going to get your heart broken sometimes, but you you know, are it's better to have loved and broken. lost than never loved at all, which I personally learned from the Smurfs. Okay. so I, Car- Carpenter Smurf fell in love with a mermaid and she had to go back to the sea. Handy re- Smurf. Handy Smurf. Okay. That's really, that's really sad. Um, so I think that's enough about that. Yeah, that's enough about that. Next. Sophie, uh, tell me about something that's been on your mind. All right. Well, it's similar, actually, because it sounds to me like what we've been talking about is the question of whether uh, whether predicting the future is worthwhile and whether using data from the past, even if it's just the recent past, is um, like the demographic modeling data that you talked about is is worth doing. And so, so can, I, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. The cup of coffee I made. This yeah. So good. <laughs> really, really good. <laughs> Now I'm just jealous. Yeah, no, it's I'm I'm really impressed with myself. Okay, c- carry on. Damn, I want to know more about this coffee. But anyway, okay, so so it's a, so I'm trying to do a segue here, um, which has to do with how do we use the past, even the recent past, to predict the future, and whether that's worth our time and worth our energy. Um, so uh, and I'm going to suggest that uh, that that one of the ways that's not really worth very much right now, uh, or or ever really, have to do with historical analogies historical analogies seem like a red herring to me people love them they especially like a few classic ones the fall of rome the rise of hitler the american civil war and absolutely at any given time and certainly at our present time there are some serious similarities and parallels to be seen and they should give us pause and they should alarm us all those kinds of things but um you know i want to i want to wonder whether they're not so much parallels as continuities or consequences, right? These things don't exist in a vacuum. Um, some things that are around today, some situations that persist today have something to do with situations that existed in the past. Um, and this is what bothers me. What does it get us to make the comparison? What does it get us? It seems to me that these kinds of historical analogies probably either A, distort the past, B, distort the present, or C, foreclose on possibilities for the future. I get that they're supposed to illuminate the past and present and help us fight for the future we want or help us avoid the future that looks too much like the past, but it seems to just be so inaccurate and so distorting as to be generally useless. And since it's so overused, it's even more useless. So, for example, if some portion of the country was convinced that Obama was Hitler and some portion is convinced that Trump is, doesn't that suggest that we probably either neither of them is Hitler and or that we don't at all understand Hitler? Wouldn't it be better to articulate our grave concerns more directly rather than by way of metaphor? And I want to say this doesn't even have anything to do with my sense as an historian that I have a duty to understand the past. I do. That might be my duty, but it's not necessarily anybody else's duties. Duty. So that's not really my concern or my problem with this. It's just that these analogies seem inutile. I did say duties. <laughs> Is that why you're laughing? Uh, n- no, it was the in- inutile. Inutile. Mm. Isn't that a great word? That is good. I've never heard that used in English. Yeah. Yeah. Inutile. And, you know, these are just like everywhere, right? All the time. And I've been guilty of them myself. I mean, if you're going to sort of do a self-critique, I'll say I I am too guilty of this kind of thing. Um, You know, because I do see similarities. But but I've become convinced it's, you know, it's... What's a, what's a what's a better way to say a red herring? I mean, it just doesn't seem to give us very much of anything. So I want to I want to uh, make a, f- a few distinctions here because um, I think you're basically right, but I think I think you're right in a couple different ways, maybe. Awesome. Yeah. So I mean, one is just the whole like argument by analogy thing. Yeah. Uh, and and one species of that is going to be historical analogies, and you'll you'll see this. Um, you know, to a certain, uh, uh, to certain political writers and politicians, it's, it's always 1938 and it's always in Munich and whatever's going on. That's, that's, they just like, this is just like Munich in 1938. Yeah. 
Uh, and I don't have any patience with that, and you can imagine why. I mean, sometimes it's Berlin in 32 or 33. It's usually Munich in 38. It's <laughs> really strange. But, and, and, and like, sometimes this is... This is... Uh-oh, I lost you. Where are you? You disappeared. You're... Ah! Hello? Yeah, you weren't there. Hey. Uh, how, when, how long was I not there? Uh, it was shortly after Munich. It's always Munich in 1938. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at you, Bill Crystal. Not Billy Crystal, but Bill, Bill <laughs> Crystal. Um, he would be proud to partake of your pecan pie. <laughs> so, um, but I guess, I guess in those cases, for a lot of those people, the point isn't really to understand the past or the present. The point is to um, wave a, a bloody shirt to get uh, a policy outcome that they want, which is usually military action of some sort. Oh, I see. I see. Uh-huh. Um, so in that case, I mean, maybe it works for them, but it's but it's dumb and it's dishonest. Well, right. And the 33 is always sort of like, you know it's one minute to midnight and you know, what are you going to do? And you should be very, very afraid. And I just, I'm not sure that that does anybody any good. I, I mean, I have a separate argument about why being afraid of things in the past returning to us in the present is also useless in terms of a political strategy, but, but that could be separate. Well, let's come back to that. Yeah. Um, but broadly speaking, I mean, I, th- I think arguments from analogy are really problematic in general, you know, whether it's historical analogy or not, because, mm-hmm. you know, it just shifts the, ar- you know, the argument is usually like we should do X, Y, and Z because back in situate in this old timey situation, <laughs> this is what happened and people didn't do that. And then things were bad or, or whatever. Um, and then that, that just shifts the argument from we should do X, Y, and Z to let's argue about whether or not the analogy holds Exactly. And and, and why problem, not just make the argument about X, Y, and Z? I completely agree. And the problem is that, you know, if what you're trying to argue is this is a really dire situation, a lot of things are on the line, it's critical, it's crucial, why would you invite somebody like me to say, well, okay, that's all true, but all this stuff you said about the past is just wrong. Like, it's just inaccurate. You've now oh, given everybody like an, fodder. To an extra sort of, vulnerability in the Yeah, argument. I mean, yeah, 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 it's, yeah. It's, it's, you've given anybody who knows anything about this thing in the past a lot of opportunities to say, like, you've just got this wrong. Un- unless the argument for X, Y, and Z is very, very weak. In the, and you're actually trying to distract from that by talking about Munich in 1938. Sure. Which, which is, I think, is often the case. You know, when you when you see those comparisons, it's it's because the the argument on the merits is is weak. I think that right now, however, the the argument on the merits, let's say that people need to get involved and to be resistant and vigilant and to take care of one another, which is most of what I see um, in terms of like calls for political action, is accurate and has lots of merit. But like, you don't need to tell me that this is exactly like the Reichstag fire to get me to believe it. Right. Right. I mean, in fact, it's it's not necessarily anything like that, but it doesn't matter. Right. Right. It's clearly bad on its own terms. Yeah. Um, You know, that said, I think there are there are certain um, I mean, there are things you can learn from historical analogy or, or your understanding of the present political situation could be informed by uh, understanding of past political situations. I, you know, Absolutely. That I'm never going to I mean, I'm never going to say that people sh- that people's lives and perceptions and be an ability to 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 be in the world is going to be hurt by understanding the past. I mean, I'm never going to say that, but I think that instrumentalizing or operationalizing the past simply to make an argument about the present doesn't do anything for our understanding of the past. And it doesn't do anything for our understanding of the present either. Uh, operationalize. Yeah, that's probably true. So, um, you, you mentioned the civil war in your little intro thing as, as I, as as a, a historical era that is often analogized, and do you have any examples of that? Because I'm I'm not sure that that's one I see a lot come up in in arguments or in in writing. Oh sure, I mean I think the Civil War. <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, and again, this is not sort of my area, but it seems to me that the Civil War is more. It's very present in our. It's present in our present because it's not 
quite done. There are consequences and continuities from the Civil War that are still present. And I want to say that seems really... um, that seems accurate and worthy to me. But I, you know, people talk, I remember, wasn't there like a whole sort of like people were, were talking about, would we have a civil war? Would we, would, it wasn't, you know, before the, um, sorry, before the Supreme Court ruled on equal marriage, there was some sort of like, well, isn't this just like the civil war where there are some states that allow it and some states that don't allow oh. it? Um, huh. Which, well, you maybe. know was interesting, I suppose, as far as it went, but not particularly, it didn't seem like that useful to me um but i mean yeah i mean the fall the fall of rome that that yeah, one that's used a, good, a lot so can i say something about the fall of rome because yeah, you said something in our great war double feature that was really really wrong and i didn't really have the chance to correct you um it actually wasn't i'm so excited we're going to talk about this it wasn't wrong no about the elector of palatine oh no that oh, wasn't okay. what i was going to say because that that was a guy that was a german guy it was, was the 30 years of war oh, yeah okay. uh-huh so yeah. he must have gotten his name from the palatine hill in rome though well it must have something to do with the holy roman empire right but yeah. i don't know what okay this is you know i don't know this stuff but what but you said and i can't believe I said, you even said this because this is so wrong. i'm gonna be embarrassed you said that that star wars and i assume you were talking about the prequels here was uh was like an analogy with um Hitler coming to power. Yeah. You said it was a bad, and, and I just think that's really wrong. <laughs> I, I think, but I do, I, I think it's much, much, much more strongly a, um, an analogy with, with the fall of Rome or, or, the, or not both. the fall of Rome, but the, the, uh, the fall of the Republic. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> I think it's a, a much, much stronger analogy. And all those stormtroopers look like Nazis. Well, yeah, yeah. No, again, the, 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 the aesthetics. stormtrooper comes from. Obviously I mean, the aesthetics are totally Nazis, but, but thematically, and and like with the story, I think I think the prequels are are much much closer to Fall of Rome. Um, okay, but so back to my point though. I mean, okay. this is a, this is <laughs> no. I what what does that get us? So like so what? So George Lucas was interested. I mean, is he just is he trying to say something about the Fall of Rome? Is he trying to say something about our time being ha- having do to do with the Fall of Rome? Is it just uh, just pop culture entertainment? Like what what are we using the past for? What is it doing for us? Is it, is it just aesthetic? Like, I don't really understand. I'm like, you know, I'm sort of, let's say unraveling. What is the point of any of this? What, what is my, what is the point of my job? I don't know. So, I mean, I think, I think the, the, in popular culture, it's like, it's, it's a, an easy way to give it some sort of resonance and make it seem important. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, I don't think there's any, any magic to it, like historical settings or, or, uh, Things that recall historical settings just, yeah, give some added emotional resonance, but I don't think it... Uh, well, and it's topical, right? I mean, I read somebody, it was like some quotation from the, um, okay, what was the movie that just came out with in Marion Cotillard and Brad Pitt about like being spies in the resistance or something i forget the name of it no, um, i have no idea but one of the costume directors said something like she was just i mean and you know god bless her she was describing her, her designs but she said something like the 1940s were a very glamorous time that's hilarious <laughs> yeah okay i mean i know what you're going for lady but that is just depressing that's that's amazing the 1940s were a very glamorous time very glamorous very glamorous when you think 1940s europe you think glamour i do uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's cool. Uh, what's it for? What's it? For? I mean, you know, again, like I think we should be suspicious of any arguments for action that depend on analogy with the past. Uh, but I don't, I don't begrudge popular culture that sort of repurposes um history to tell a story. Yeah, okay. I mean, depends on the story, depends on the repurposing, I guess. But Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, there's there's stuff that can be really objectionable, and I'm tr- I'm trying to think of a good example. Right. And you can and you Well, can... like a lot of people were really upset with when X-Men came out in 1999 that it opens like the opening scene is is in Auschwitz and a, a lot of people were were pretty upset about that when the movie came out. I can understand that. I have not seen that movie. Oh, it's actually, you know what? I actually it's not a great movie, but that scene is is tremendous. Hmm. I think the rest hmm. of the movie is kind of meh. Meh. Uh, so, right. I mean, I think it seems to me that the, p- the problem with all of this is just it's all, it's a problem of accuracy. And if you're going to be inaccurate, you're going to run into problems. 
So this, yeah, I mean, and I guess, I guess we're, this means that maybe this argument is, is similar to our argument about historical fiction in a way then. Mm. Mm. Can you explain more? Well, like we, we talked about historical fiction and, and we decided it was a waste of time because it, uh, if it, it doesn't actually lead to increased understanding of the past in any meaningful way. And it actually might sort of mislead you about the past in really important ways. Um, and it can tell you something really interesting about your own, uh, about the time of the author. Why is the, you know, that, then that, cause you can historicize that too, you know? And, and I think that can be really interesting and useful. Um, you know, why, why, okay. So for example, and I've not read this book, so I don't know why I'm pulling this, but you know, why did Mark Twain get interesting and in, interested in sending a Connecticut Yankee to King Arthur's court? You know, like there's an, there's something interesting going on there. We can like oh, yeah, definitely okay. agree on that and we can do our own kind of analysis and think our own thoughts about it. But if you're trying to call people to action by saying this, you know, if you're saying do X because Y is the same as Z, uh, you, you better be right that Y is the same as Z. And you also like now it starts to make me wonder, well, OK, so are you saying that if the people in Z time had done X, then it would have gone better for them? Like, I, I don't really know what it gets us. I guess. I mean, I keep saying the same thing over and over, but I I just I would caution against it because I I I. I don't know what it does other than kind of stir up fear or perhaps in a different circumstance, um, you know, some, some kind of like some kind of laudatory reaction, like, I don't know. Uh, Congressman worth is the new JFK. You're like, okay, whatever that means. Right. Like that's only helpful if you actually understand JFK and your understanding is the same as the person make making that claim yeah yeah i don't know i mean i agree it's 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 definitely uh, it's so tempting i get it yeah so i i want to go back to like i guess i want to go back to the civil war yeah not literally of course you do because you <laughs> no not literally but you are one of those people that's interested in the civil war i am and i'm I'm interested in it. I think be- like mer- many, many male Americans, <laughs> like all good, uh, white men, <laughs> especially from new England. Um, Oh, we should do it. We should do a segment on the civil war sometime. Uh, just okay. to make you, well, just- maybe not. <laughs> Only but, if I but- well, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll talk about that. Okay. Uh, but I, but I guess like the, um, the reason I, I got interested in the civil war was not because of the civil war per se, but because of the continuities with contemporary po- uh, politics. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, but that's not analogizing, right? That's right. That's actually seeing a kind of change over time and trying to trace that because I would never deny that things in the past have an impact on things in the future or things on the present. You know what I mean? Like, duh. Like, yes, there is a period. There is a timeline. Things happen and then they stick around. Um, that's fine. I don't have any problem with that. Good. And and pointing out um, hypocrisies too, like saying, well, we you know in in 1928 we said X, and you know people admire that stance, and now we are doing Y in direct contradiction to that, and we should see that there is a you know that there's a hypocrisy here. Right? That's fine too. Um, or even you know some people tried this in the past and it had disastrous results. Let's not do that. Sometimes it seems very clear that those things are true and you can say them and they remain true. But but really complicated historical events are they have too many moving parts. Mm-hmm. You can't just kind of pick them up and 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 plunk them somewhere else and say oh this is the same as that. Uh, that makes, that makes sense to me. So what, why do you think people do it then? Uh, enthusiasm, fear. I don't know. It's back to the same kind of like emotional stuff. Um, I don't know. I don't know why people do it. Maybe we should ask our listeners. Why do you do this guys? I mean, I'm guilty of it too. You know, I see these things and I'm like, Oh my God, this is just like that time when, uh, let me give you a warning, right? Don't do this because people did this in the past and it was a bad idea. I get it. It seems like if you but, have data, you want to give people that data and, and, and help them make a better decision. So I guess, I guess the question is how do, how do we distinguish between learning from the past and these inutile historical hmm. analogies? 
I think it has something to do with presentation maybe, right? If I say, okay, well, I just want to, so you said, you've said you want to do this and, and I get where you're coming from, but let me tell you about it. Another time that I can think of that people sort of try the same strategy and here's what happened. And I think that we need to be really careful about doing this because, you know, you're assuming a certain kind of uh, trustworthiness on the part of your leaders. And these people assume the same trustworthiness. And I think in both cases, that trustworthiness is lacking. So don't do it. It's a bad idea. That's different than saying, this thing that's happening right now is it's it's following the exact same steps as that thing that happened. And that means that we're headed in the exact same place that they were headed. And I think part of the problem too is that it suggests a certain kind of inevitability, right? Like they ended in disaster, we're going to end in disaster. And there's no, it's inevitable. There's no contingency, there's no agency, there's no unforeseen stuff. This is just what's going to happen and you better be afraid. And I don't really think that's that nice to do or that useful Mm -hmm. do those two those two things seem like different things uh say it again uh, i just like describe these two different ways of do you think they're actually different from each other or am i just like making a distinction that doesn't i mean i guess maybe i'm saying and this maybe does come back to a kind of professionalization of historical understanding but maybe i'm saying you better know what you're talking about you better mm-hmm. be pretty sure you know what you're talking about before you start putting these things together. And I, I guess one one other thing to say about historical analogies here is, is often when someone is making them, there's there's a real sort of selectiveness to it. Mm-hmm. So so you say like you know, oh, you know, just to be again, I think Bill Crystal in 2003 was making a lot of uh, historical analogies between Saddam Hussein and mm-hmm. Hitler in 1938. Uh, right. Obviously, you know, ridiculous on the face of it at the time um but uh uh you know pointing out any similarities that happen to exist between those situations uh sort of ignores all of the other situations where you know there was there was you know some tyrant in Mm -hmm. control of a country that was somewhat aggressive and the situation was nothing at all like mm-hmm. Hitler in 1938. Like, like all of those, mm-hmm. all of those unsavory, aggressive, strong men <laughs> ruling countries who didn't try to conquer the world. Um, mm-hmm. And there have been a lot of them over the mm-hmm. years, yeah. and there have been very few Hitlers. Um, so, so yeah, when you make those historical analogies, you, you're you're ignoring all of those, all of the non-Hitlers out there. Um, and you know, I just just to keep piling on. Uh, Bill Crystal, because uh, he deserves it. Um, you know, it's it's telling that they always reach for uh, Munich in 1938, um, because that's like the one example they have. You know what I mean? It's like it's always like we should have invaded and attacked then, and if we had, things would have been better. But it's like like the mere fact that they always have to go to that one example. Right. Um, tells you that probably the argument isn't very strong. Right. Or they They're would have like, like lots of like where are all the other examples of times when right. launching an aggressive um, uh, preventative war turned out, uh, you know, turned out well or generally or, poorly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where where are all your other examples? Like that's the one you've well, got. And that's what's interesting too. And I would just say this to kind of turn it around and, and maybe contradict myself. But so I've been pushing pretty. We you know we've been talking a lot about. Uh, World War II, the lead up to it, and and um, the rise of the Third Reich and things like this, and and you know, I I did see a meme the other day that was sort of like, here are the five steps that Hitler took to like destroy the world and create catastrophe, and like we're at number two right now. It's just like, okay, none of this makes any. This is like this. First of all, is just wrong, but second of all, it doesn't make it. It, it, it gives no context whatsoever. Um, but. But I wonder whether also we we might have like a weird propensity for negative analogies. And I'll give you an example, which is to say like lots of people are using these kinds of 1930s and 40s analogies. But what I've heard, and that's like public on social media, but what I've heard people who are a bit older, quite a bit older than we are say, not analogizing, but just sharing their experience is kind of feels like the 60s. It kind of feels like how I felt in the, in the late 60s, early 70s right now. And, you know, that's actually really interesting hmm. and possibly worth talking about and possibly worth I mean, there are actually people alive today who you can say, well, what did you do? And how did you, how did you deal with how crazy things seemed and how fearful you were and how, um, 
you know, it felt like the country was coming apart or whatever. You know, you can actually talk to people about how they felt. And these are the same people who are um, doing some of the same things that they did then they're now doing again. And I just wonder whether we always reach for like the, the one, the analogy that, that in some ways gives us, um, lets us off the hook in some way, um, you know, and suggest that so the disaster is, is on its way and there's really nothing we can do. We better fight like hell, but we're going to lose. I mean, maybe. Did we lose against Hitler? Uh, the United States did not lose against Hitler, but That's what I, I thought. oftentimes I think people are talking about what Germans should have done, which, oh. you know, Americans talking about what Germans should have done is like already kind of stupid, but, um, or, you know, what non-Germans should have done before they did it, before they did anything, right? It's about sort of appeasement and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I wonder whether there aren't, maybe we just need, maybe just like you said, we need better models. Maybe we just need more better historical analogies. Like why aren't people like pulling some crazy, like, you know what this reminds me of? Like This reminds me of that random time in like 1802 that this happened. I mean, why not? Maybe we need more diversity and richness of historical analogies. Well, I mean, I feel like we've, I've been seeing more, 1914 analogies than 1938 mm. analogies over the last six I have months not I, okay that's really interesting not in a good ha- way i mean yeah i mean it's, like it's i mean it's still world war analogies but like i've been seeing a lot of like you know uh uh when when you have a lot of confusion around and like aggressive actors and confusion and 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 people not really understanding each other's motives or um, mm-hmm. not understanding each other's red lines, mm-hmm. um, uh, then you run the risk of um, people crossing each other's red lines without realizing that they're going to, and then triggering lots and lots of bad things to happen. So I, I've been seeing that kind of argument floating around a lot. And I mean, again, my spidey sense is sort of like, well, that's not really a very accurate way of thinking about 1914, but, sure. but okay. Well, I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I could partial. well be, I don't, I don't know. It's, very it's much. partial. It's, yeah. It's, and and it depends on how hard you're pushing the point. Like if you're saying like yeah. this is just like the spring of 1914, and we need to do X. That's right. different from saying like, hey, you know, we we've seen what happens when when there's yeah. confusion about this sort of thing. So, sure. So there's a danger here. Yes. And, you yes. know, so it depends on yeah, just how hard you're pushing the analogy, or whether you're just trying to raise a small a small point. To, yeah, I think that's for emphasis probably or a really good point. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably a really good point. And I had another point, but I already forgot it. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah. That's, uh, It'll come back to me sometime. Maybe okay. I don't know. We'll see. Well, maybe you can uh, maybe you can put it in the bonus episode. Yeah, we're gonna have such a great bonus episode. You can't if, even you can't if even believe how our listeners rate and review us on iTunes. Otherwise, how can we have a bonus episode? We can't. We can't have a bonus episode if, episode if people won't won't rate us. Um, Christmas so, is canceled, and there's no goose. No more goose. <laughs> Tiny Tim is very sad. Uh huh. Uh huh. He doesn't even have a walking stick. That's how sad he is. Yeah. Um, so, look, don't make Sophie sad like Tiny, T- Tiny Tim. Go rate us. We we really want to do this bonus episode, but we just we just won't be able to unless you unless you rate us. Yeah, and don't make me sad by making bad historical analogies. Every time you do that, I cry. Yep. Every historian cries. <laughs> and every time I write a bad poem, a poet cries. <laughs> Do you write a lot of bad poems? And no, I don't want to make the poets cry. I, I care oh, about them. Okay. And clap your hands and help a fairy live. Mm-hmm. Like Tinkerbell. Like Tinkerbell. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, I think, I think we might as well stop there. Yeah, I think so. Uh, hey, good talk. Yeah, good talk to you as well. Good workout, everybody. Mm, yeah, right. Go drink some Red Bull. Woo! <laughs> now, uh, yeah, drink, drink some water. Make sure to hydrate. Stretch it out. Uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Follow me on Twitter at Amos Worth. Follow the show at TMWIW Podcast. Uh, you can go to our website at uh, TMWIW.net. Uh, if you go to TMWIW.net slash S1E6, you'll find the show notes for this episode. Uh, you, there's a contact form on the website, so you can send us an email. We'll read it. We promise. And uh, that's probably it for business. Yeah. Well, 
this is great conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. I did too. Um, so with that, we say goodbye to season one. Yeah. Cue the Austrian orphan singing a sound of music song. Yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to sing it, I'm, but I no, hope it's neither. I hope it's singing in your head. And um, we'll be they, back wait, for season were, two. They weren't orphans, were no, they? No, they had a dad, but yeah. you know, he was absent. Sem- semi-orphans. He was kind of, yeah. I mean, his heart was frozen ever since he lost his wife. You know, speaking of historical analogies, I've been seeing a <laughs> lot of gifts of Christopher Plummer tearing up <laughs> Nazi flags lately. <laughs> Apparently, Christopher Plummer hated being in that movie. Really? Why? Yeah. I don't know. He just like was really embarrassed about it. I actually, honestly, I hear that guy's a dick. Really? Well, I, I love Christopher Plummer. I think he's a great actor, but I've I've heard he's a real dick. You know who was also probably a real dick was the Hitler? real Captain Von Trapp. Oh. Yeah. Well, oh. I mean, they may have been austro austro fascists or something, but but that's all right. That he might have actually been. Why did he run away if he was a fascist? You know, I don't know. I just okay. know someone who studies this, and she told me. Interesting. You know, they, and they went, they went to Vermont. I know they did, and they did the Trapp Family Lodge, which yep. exists to this day. You can still go listen to Von Trapp children singing if you want. Aren't they like 100 years old? I mean, I think that's like the, grand, the grandkids now or something. <laughs> but each, each generation is forced to perform like little really? dancing puppets. Yeah, like little, little monkeys. Wow. It's really creepy. I right. have no idea if that's true. I think it is, but I'm not sure. Hey, wow. we're we're just babbling now, we're so we're going to go stop. now. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>